This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. My guest today is Captain Harold McGee. Originally from Peoria, Illinois, he married his high school sweetheart, and they now have three beautiful sons. Harold blends his love for activism, family, humor, and Jesus into speaking, writing, and training. His resources as an author, speaker, counselor, and coach help him help individuals and families define their purpose, experience true freedom, and heal their homes. Harold has more than a decade of teaching and counseling experience, enabling him to reach others with truth, transparency, and strength. In addition to over a decade of service to the United States Army, Harold has launched several successful businesses. He now focuses all his humor, experience, and enthusiasm on being of deep service as an entrepreneur and creative director with the goal of inspiring people to develop lives that display purpose, freedom, and legacy. In today's episode, we tackle such topics as the school-to-prison pipeline, government assistance, systemic poverty, and playing the race card. From being homeless to living in government projects to finding himself in college and the military to ultimately becoming a successful entrepreneur, This is a story you won't soon forget. Well, thank you, Captain Harold McGee, for being here with me today. I am so excited to see what you are going to teach me and how I can see the world through your lens. Thank you for joining me. You are very welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, wonderful. Well, I know we're going to touch on some pretty heavy topics. So to start off a little bit light, I would like to ask you, if you were to have a dinner party, what three people would you invite and why? And they can be alive or dead, either one. I would have to say, and this answer might tell a lot about myself, but Mm -hmm. my three people would be Frederick Douglass, KB, who is a uh, Christian rapper, and Chadwick Boseman. Oh, fantastic. I've never heard of KB, but I know Frederick Douglass and Chadwick Boseman and both of those right there. Incredible. So to answer your question of why, it's kind of a long one, but I'll, I'll break it down. So Frederick Douglass, um, he, not only because he was clearly one of the most vocal defenders of human rights in the anti-slavery movement, mm-hmm. but he's also... He's when he was when his slaveholder taught him how to write, and then her husband forbade her for continuing. Mm-hmm. He would he would seek out opportunities to teach himself, whether it was signs or uh, labels or whatever it was. He would continue to teach himself and learn, but he refused to be boxed into a profession of interest. Like if you clearly you know about Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. but he was an abolitionist, uh, human rights for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
rights activist. He was an orator, an author, a journalist, a publisher, a reform. Like he was all types of stuff. <laughs> I love how he didn't set limits for himself. That is, exactly. that's so encouraging. And then KB, he's he's a he's a Christian rapper, uh, and he's my favorite rapper. Okay, but that's not why I would I would uh, have dinner with him. But because he's he's a great theologian, like more yeah. than his rap, he he's like he's probably one of the only Bible or Christian rappers who like has a theological degree and and his eloquent with his delivery. Well, you make me want to go ahead and go <laughs> download some of his songs now. That's incredible. I love studying theology, so I would enjoy listening to how he expresses that through music. That would be yes. super fascinating. It's, it's amazing. He's he And he's also an activist and a speaker and entrepreneur and what I call a creative giant. And mm -hmm. Chad, Chadwick Boseman, he needs no introduction. He's by far on everyone's heart these days, and mm -hmm. he's truly an amazing person. Mm -hmm. But from the movies he's played in to the speeches he's given to the ultimately the way that he left his legacy and mark on this earth. What all of these men have in common that are truly amazing to me and why I would ask them to come is one, they're activists. They, they are unapologetic about what they stand for, mm -hmm. but, they're, but they're also entrepreneurs. So they're not depending on uh, anyone else to support them. They have all supported themselves in their, in their various ventures and have mastered to some degree how to navigate a world and a field um, that has been dominated by whites, yet they mm -hmm. never they never lost themselves while earning the respect of their peers. But not only earning the respect of their peers, they've also uh, cultivated an understanding of their people and their culture. So inviting them to dinner, my goal <laughs> while having dinner would have to be to learn how to bring out of me what it takes to be an agent of change that I see that they've been in my own generation. That is so inspiring. Oh my goodness. I just need to sit and let that sink in because <laughs> the theme here that I hear you saying is the activism really gets to you. It's a, that, that thing that grabs you and doesn't let go. You like how people are able to stand up strongly for what they believe in with no apologies, just yes. be who you are yes. and empower others in the same vein. Would that Absolutely. be a, an accurate summation absolutely I'm, I'm a firm believer that activism has a new look and feel than it mm. did many years ago mm -hmm. so are you drawn to activism yourself you know i am i really am because i used to think that activism was other other people's job but in the world today i believe activism is so popular and so trendy but it, it boils down to just being authentic Ooh, that's a good way to describe it. It does. Um, and the people who are not authentic, it is becomes just a fad, just a, exactly. a, a short-lived venture, right? Yes. You have to be willing to stick with that. And it's not going to be the popular route, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's a fantastic start. <laughs> Let's see if we can go deeper, shall we? Yes. <laughs> well, I'd love to get to know more about you, Harold. I'd love to know... Um, what it was like growing up being you? What were some of the things that were just awesome about your childhood and and a young adult years? And what were some of the hardships that kind of shaped you to becoming the man you are today? Yes, that's a that's a common question, and um, I've I've undergone. I would preface my answer by saying this: um, 
I've undergone extensive um, healing and um, counseling to get to a point to where I can speak freely and candidly of uh, how I got to where I am. So, wow. Although some of these things may be like, like, wow, I can't believe this, but understand that they, they, I, I talked to them lightheartedly today because I've, I've, I've dealt with them extensively mm-hmm. um, already. So my dad, I'll start off this. Um, I'll keep it short. Um, someone asked me this question before and an hour later we were uh, wrapping up. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've made sure that I, that I've keep it short for the sake of our, your time and everyone who's listening time. But I will say this growing up with me, I'm Harold McGee Jr. My dad is Harold McGee Sr. But I didn't become a junior until like my sophomore year in high school, hmm. uh, which is weird, which is a, 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 a neat story all mm-hmm. in its own. But my dad, he never wanted children by my mom because my mother was his, uh, he, my dad was already married and had a family of his own. My mother was his mistress or, um, and our vernacular, his side piece or his side girl. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so when my brother and I was born, uh, we only saw our dad maybe once a week when he stopped by to give my mom money or to take us oh. shopping and to make sure that we had everything we needed. And so my, I, I say in the beginning years, my dad was a monetary father. He wasn't a, uh, he wasn't a, a father who was there emotionally, but he was definitely there financially. But you and still so, had that longing for him. As oh, a absolutely. young boy, right? Absolutely. Everything I did up until I graduate, graduated college was to please my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so my dad was physically abusive to my mother. Mm. And he was, uh, he was a, a professional bodybuilder. So imagine <laughs> that. Mm. And uh, one of the earliest memories that that is ingrained into my mind is when is seeing my father uh, physically slam my mom through our kitchen table oh uh, no, and splitting it in half. And I was, as a young kid, I was like in second grade, maybe second or third grade. And um, I couldn't really understand it. I didn't know how to, uh, mm-hmm. how to process it. Mm-hmm. So only thing I could relate it to was like WWF. It's like wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, my dad is a is this is just this amazing dude who can slam people through tables. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you ever talk to your mom about it, or did she talk to you guys about it, or did you guys just avoid the topic altogether whenever it happened? Well, I don't think we've ever talked about it um, head on because shortly after that, my dad went to prison, mm. and so um, my dad went to prison. My mom through. Circumstances, uh, we got evicted from our project housing, and so we were homeless. And so we moved into the YWCA, and my mom had a, a drug and alcohol problem, so we got evicted out of the YWCA. Mm. We moved into the Southside Mission, and for the same reasons, uh, she we got evicted out of the Southside Mission. So um, there was no more homes and shelters to go to. So we tried staying at family house and we got, you know, bounced, we jumped around. We would stay on people's porches who forgot that they said they were going to let us stay there. And so we would just like, um, we would just be moving around. And all this time, um, my brother and I, we are literally living out of our backpacks. So this whole time where we're homeless, this whole time that we're uh, trying to find a place to stay, we're still going to school. 
but we're going to school with everything we could fit in our backpack is what we live with. So all of our homework and schoolwork, we carry under our arms because Mm -hmm. in our backpack, we got clothes and toys and toiletries and things like that. And so that was, that was kind of the, the lifestyle uh, growing up. Eventually my dad got out of prison and he moved us with him. Then his ex-wife who was like crazy, you know, stuff happened with her. And so we had to move with our auntie and oh us around and we only saw our mom once a week and that made her even more depressed. And so I was an angry kid. I was mad at my dad. I was mad at my mom. I was mad at God. Who could blame you? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm glad you prefaced this whole thing by saying, You've already gone through a lot of healing (laughs) because otherwise my heart would just, I couldn't take it anymore. No child needs to witness this or feel this insecure or any of those things. Just, I I cannot, I, you can't blame you for being angry at the world. Yeah. And so it was, I had my ups and downs. Um, There was homelessness. There was gangs in our family, drug dealers, um, but it's also was the beginnings of my entrepreneurial journey as well, because uh, even as a young kid, when my dad was in prison, I would I would go dumpster diving for cans and and, and bottles and stuff mm-hmm. to turn in for for money. Mm-hmm. And um, and I also would taught myself how to fix bikes. And so I would mm-hmm. have, I have like a little bike chop shop in the, <laughs> in the projects. <laughs> so in the midst of all that bleakness, you saw hope in. Yes. physically doing something about it. Well, because my mom, she was so sick and depressed and, and, and um, just full of shame and guilt and all type of other stuff that I realize now that I didn't then because I was so angry at her, but she didn't work. You know, she never had to work. My dad always took care of her. You know, we had people in our family that dropped off money and food and stuff, and we were on government assistance. So I had to become that that man of the house, so to say, to take care of my mom. Like mm. when it, when it came to signing permission slips, I would sign them. I would sign them for my brother and myself. I would do all type of things. I would make sure we were taken care of. And so I had to grow up quickly. And so I had to provide quickly. And that led me into, you know, I started off collecting cans and fixing bikes, but soon after, um, because of the people in my family, it led to um, also dealing drugs and, for one year, I, I, I was not in school, not of any fault of myself, but I didn't have my shots to go to middle school. And my mom, she wasn't in a mental space to take me to get my shots. So I was just like a whole year out of school with nothing to do. And so, so that's, it was a whole bunch of, it's a, it's a lot of things that happened and a lot of uh, uh, unfortunate things, but a lot of great things too, because how, although that's how my life started, I also... Remember, I told you earlier that I became a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, my, my name was Harold Edwards, but my name changed to Harold McGee because when my dad got out of prison, um, he was uh, saved. So you'll say he found Jesus, as they would say. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I didn't like that because when my dad went to jail, he had a lot of money from, you know, from his <laughs> various illegal <laughs> ventures. Mm-hmm. But now that he's a Christian, he's like broke. And I'm like, oh, man, why are all these Christians broke? Why can't we just be like, stay rich as a Christian? <laughs> so I was, I was like upset. But I saw that, although that's how my story started, I saw my dad bring restitution to our family because he ended up marrying my mother. He changed my brother and I last name to his, which 
made me a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, and he became a very integral part of my life. Like for the later half, I saw my dad on a regular basis. We had great conversations and um, yeah, it was, it was good. How did you come to forgive him? How did you find it in yourself to let go of that anger and agree to a relationship? You know, it happened when I joined the military. <laughs> I was in college. I was in college and I lost two scholarships. I was partying. I was failing. And I got my first bursar bill. And I was like, and I and I told my dad, I was like, Dad, I can't afford this. And he was like, son, I can't, I can't either. <laughs> so <laughs> And so I rode my bike to the recruiter's office and I was like, look, will you guys pay for my school? Because I'm not trying to go back home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, yes. And I was like, when can I leave? <laughs> and so I left right after the end of the semester, mm-hmm. owing, the, owing them all that money. And I went to join the military. And there I really, when I joined the military, I, was, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, allow me to not come home the same person that I came here as. Mm. because I didn't want to live the same uh, life that I was living. Because before I joined the military, I was, you know, hanging out with friends that were not good for me. I was drinking and smoking and partying. And, you know, it was fun as a freshman. But after waking up in the bathroom over the toilet so many times, it's mm-hmm. kinda, it kind of gets old. Mm-hmm. And so um, I began to really develop a prayer life at the, in the military one, because I thought basic training was going to kill me. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, Lord, please let me get through this. Let me live. <laughs> but also um, I built some really amazing relationships with people in the military. And I encountered my first um, outright racist comment in the military. Mm. Um, that was, that was not any fault of the person who said it but of his grandmother who taught him because he mm. thought he thought I was in basic training and he thought that all black people were cursed by God to live a degraded life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, was just the curse of him mm-hmm. uh, fallacy. And I was like, I was so shocked that that was my first time hearing it. And so of course, being the person that I am, I started looking it up and researching it and reading mm-hmm. about it. And then I was actually able to have a conversation with him. And I was like, look, man, this is, this is false. Like, and mm-hmm. here's why. And we became great friends. And he was like, man, I'm so sorry for being a racist all these years. (laughs) I love that story, though, because it shows the positivity of communication and how some people are just repeating things they've heard and not even knowing why. And the fact that you guys became friends, that's a beautiful example of how to talk to others about racist ideas. Yeah, that's, I love that. Thank you for sharing that's, that. That's a little side note. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, in that process, um, something happened where I was listening to a song by a lady by the name of Misty Edwards out of Kansas City. And in her song, it said, all men are broken who grow up to be broken men who then go on to break their children. And the cycle keeps happening. And then at the end of the song, it says, but I'm better than that. I'm not like your father. And so, and she was talking from the point of view of God. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I understood that because of my dad's upbringing and his relationship with his father and that 
was kind of passed on the abusiveness, the, the uh, multiple children by multiple women and Mm -hmm. how he, he was just a broken man who was trying his best, but just repeating the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so, but what made it even easier for me is that I, I could tell that he wanted it. He wanted to have a relationship with me and my mother and my brother because he took the extra step to marry her. He took the extra step to change our names to his name. And so by that time, I was, as a little kid, I'm still fascinated by him as a father. You know, mm-hmm. I can't, you know, so it was easier. But as I grew up, I, I started to accept like, hey, and the same thing with my mother, because I was bitter at my mother for my, my, my father was physically abusive. My mother was verbally abusive. She would say some, she would say some hurtful things. And I had to realize that she's a product of her environment as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that takes a lot of maturity right there. Two imperfect people in an imperfect situation trying to make the best of it. And then you mix in alcoholism and drugs and gangs and guns and yeah. this, uh, uh, a bad mixture of just all things bad. And I turned out pretty good. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> they didn't do too bad of a job. What you said, this is in the South side. Are you talking about Chicago? No, or where no. Carbondale? I'm, I'm from Peoria, Illinois. It's about two, Peoria. Hours, okay. two hours South of Chicago. Okay. I'm sitting here wondering, and I know you could speak to this probably better than I can, but I'm interested in your point of view. I'm wondering, I'm not wondering, I kind of see how systemic racism also, because of its unjustness, also seems to produce systemic poverty. And it also seems to be unfairly pushed on the Black community. Is that a fair assessment? Or what would you say to that? Were there a lot of white kids or um, Latino kids in your community as well? Living under the same system of poverty and the cycle, that same cycle? So I know in my project, I I was raised in the Harrison Homes in Peoria, Illinois, and I knew of three white people in my projects. One of them lived in the same building. We were friends. The other one, well, two of them lived in the same building, in a the third one just went to the same school as us. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, it was it was it was all black. And um, but yes, I will say the short answer is yes. I have a one thing that people will will learn about me. I have a great disdain for for systemic poverty because it it really it really promotes fatherlessness. Mm-hmm. It because does. because I've personally known people in my family and in my life who intentionally do not marry because it will take away their government benefits. Oh, so no. there's women that I know who intentionally will not allow their kids father to live with them or be in their lives because their government benefits will be either um, taken away completely or reduced tremendously because government assistance is like, it's like the father figure replacement. Mm. And if, and if, and if, and if you think, I don't want to get too, too philosophical or, or, or with it, but if I'm okay with it, philosophical. <laughs> if you, if, if, if government replaces the father figure and authority in the home, then the government dictates how that home is ran because that's Ooh, the father's yeah. role. Yeah. 
So if, it makes if sense. the father is not there to give you identity because a fa- one of the roles of a father is to give identity to, to his children, but also to affirm the identity of his wife. She gets comfort by knowing that her father, or that her husband affirms her and mm-hmm. who she is. Mm-hmm. So if he's not there to do that, then the government is there in that role to give you identity, to give you, uh, to, to run your home and to let you know what's what. So if no one else is speaking life over you, then the government by default is speaking identity over you as children and as adults. And so you take that, if all you know is government assistance, then you begin to depend on it like if you like you would a father. Wow, what insight. So if you grow up depending on the government and, and having comfort in that dependent, and because some people depend on it to, the, to, to a point where they won't even look for a job because they can mm-hmm. make more money through government assistance than they can from a minimum wage job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that security is now in the hands of a government that it was never meant to be in, which stifles the, the mental growth, the relational growth mm-hmm. and the, and the uh, community growth of that whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so that whole ecosystem is basically run <laughs> by is, is, is government funded and government run. I mean, we could unpack that in so many ways. <laughs> we could have a whole podcast on just talk an episode on just that because that is so the, the problems are so intertwined. Like when you start unraveling one string, exactly, the whole thing falls apart. I cannot, but I your your insight to that and having lived through it and able to put words to what that is. I've never thought of the government acts like the father figure and tells the family or the wife or the kids who they are that right there is genius i've never put it in that perspective before you gotta you gotta understand i lived that you did that's why you can see it so clearly when my father went to prison we solely depended on our governments for housing for you know we were kicked out of one government house and, and, and went to a government shelter and then another government shelter and we kept getting displaced by them and so mm-hmm our livelihood was dependent upon that government. Our life decisions was based off of what the government said was okay and not okay, or Mm -hmm. was allowed and not allowed. Mm -hmm. And so when my father came home and he took us back and he started speaking different things and explaining Mm -hmm. different things, Mm -hmm. my mindset shifted from a government funded mentality to a fatherhood mentality. So no longer was I concerned with if we were going to get our government assistance. Mm-hmm. I was like, my dad is here and he's going to take care of mm-hmm. everything. Like he's going to just, there's not going to be a need because he's here. And so my whole mindset, I, I saw my mindset shift, not as a kid, but looking back. Mm-hmm. Say, Harold, how, when did things shift for you? Things shifted for me when my dad came back into my life. And he gave me identity because he gave me his name. That's beautiful. I had had my mother's last name, which was tied to government assistance. Mm -hmm. He removed that and gave me his last name, which was tied to his lineage and legacy. Mm, That is so beautiful. I love that correlation. Did you ever fear that statistic or did you even know about it? About was it one in three black boys or one in three or one in five are on this, the school to prison pipeline? Yes, the 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 prison the school to prison pipeline is very serious because 
um, a lot of my friends were diagnosed with special needs and behavioral issues and put in special ed and mm-hmm. eventually dropped out of school because no one wants to go to school and be seen as a special ed kid. Uh-huh, exactly. Um, but um, I guess what made what made that really real is when the movie uh, Coach Carter came out. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> yes. And he, really, he really highlighted that. Uh, uh-huh, he did. With his kids. And so it wasn't aware of me. Growing up, I went to a predominantly black high, uh, a predominantly black elementary school, um, and then my first predominantly white school was when I was in sixth grade. When my dad got out of my dad got out of jail when I was in middle school, but he kind of moved in with us when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So um, I saw I wasn't aware of it consciously, but I was aware of it subconsciously. Meaning, I knew that if I stayed on the track, I saw so many people in that, on that track end mm-hmm. up in prison or dead. Mm-hmm. So many of my friends and, and, and relatives. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I was aware of the possibility, the, the overwhelmingly possibility of me ending up that way. And so, which, which allowed me to change the way I moved and did things a lot. I can't imagine the burden or the fear that goes along with that reality. Well, it's, 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 um, I tell people it's a lot of, it's a lot like being in war. Like I'm in the military. So when you're, when you have soldiers, um, I haven't myself, I haven't personally been deployed overseas, but I have counseled soldiers and, and been with soldiers who have, who deal with PTSD. Mm -hmm. Now I've met, I've met just as many soldiers with PTSD as I have met people, um, from the projects and from, you know, Black people who've grown up impoverished with PTSD. I've, that's they're, they're about the same. Mm. Um, and so, when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the midst of it, it's um, it's fight or flight survival mode. So you're not yes. really aware of the intricacies and the and the heightened um, element or a level of danger in life or death. Mm-hmm. But then when you're finally out of it. And you can relax. It's like, how do I dial this down? Because I've been living on edge for so many years. Mm-hmm. That somebody brushed past me the wrong way. I'm, I'm like ready to. <laughs> fight. Yes. It often reminds me of um, a lot of the Holocaust survivor stories that I've read where they are subsisting on, you know, 300 to 500 calories a day. They can live through all these broken bones and diseases yet right after they get rescued they're in the hospital for a year they're bought they just everything shuts down they Mm -hmm. cannot keep going yet they lived for however many years in a concentration camp it's that same survival the need to survive you just do what you have to do to get through right absolutely it seems the same way to me yeah and 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 to answer your question it, it wasn't i didn't think about it while i was in it but once I got out of it, I look back and I'm like, wow, like, how did, <laughs> how did we make it? Yeah. How did you not end up in that pipeline? Right. Yeah. So you, you said. Which you'd is end- crazy because I'm uh, not to cut you off, but that's okay. It's, it's a reality because me and my brother, I have, my father has over 20 children by several different women. Wow. But there's only me and my younger brother by my mom. Mm-hmm. We grew up in the same household. We saw the same thing. We had the same experience. But he he did end up in prison and he did end up in that pipeline and he oh, did I'm sorry. have that experience. And I didn't, and that's 
that's why I say there's a very fine line mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes down to the, this, it comes down to a, a few decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of those decisions was I chose to remove myself from that environment by going to college. Wow. That's incredible. That gave me the goosebumps. Yeah. The two of you growing up and seeing the exact same things is a testament to how our personalities handle things differently. So you ended up going to college and you have captain in front of your name. And you also, you also ended up going into the military. Yes. How did you, what did you major in? I know you also own your own business. So how did that all come about? And how do you so- do all those two <laughs> things at the same time? So that's a great question. So there's, I enjoy, so although my, my life uh, in the beginning, like I said, it, it has, it has a very dark and overcast and a lot of things, but it's a story. And I think everyone has a story and mm-hmm. everyone, you know, you can be authentic about your story, but in college, I got a lot of healing and in the military, um, I, I got even more healing. My wife and I, we also do premarital counseling mm-hmm. and, um, a lot of the couples, they ask us, what's something that you don't regret, like about life? And my two answers are always the same. I don't regret marrying my wife and mm-hmm. I don't regret getting therapy. <laughs> Good for you. Excellent. <laughs> but um, I ended up um, in college. I majored. Um, I had a liberal arts uh, major, which was pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, I minored in military science because I had to, because I got a scholarship through the military, I had to graduate at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So I took the, I took the major that would allow whatever class I took to count. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So that I could could graduate on time. So I have a very, I have a, because I have a love for learning, I took classes in everything, not realizing that I have to major in something specific. Mm-hmm. So I have philosophy classes. I have marketing classes. I have management classes, health science classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, t- I took classes on everything, just anything that interests me at the time. I was like, let me learn about this. Political science classes, mm-hmm. just engineering classes. And and then I was like, wait, by the time I choose a major, I'm going to be graduated in like six years. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just chose... I just chose university studies, which means I could study anything in a university and it counts towards my major. <laughs> That's genius. And I can tell from your book stack behind you that <laughs> yes. you really do appreciate learning. And that was probably the best thing for you. Just not knowing which direction to go and knowing a little bit of everything. I can see how it all plays into who you are now. Yes, it is. And I, and, and one thing that my childhood did instill upon me and is that is a that hustle entrepreneurial grit mentality. And so I, I, I fell in love with, with entrepreneurism because mm. it, it, it was so appealing to me, but I'm also a very creative person because one thing that allowed me to escape as a kid was my imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, I love getting lost in books. I love getting lost in my imagination to distract me from my surroundings and, the, and my current reality. Uh-huh. And so as a creative and as an engineer, I could just do, I'm not engineer, but entrepreneur. I could just pursue whatever I wanted. <laughs> so, and so that's what I did. And so in the military, um, I joined the military in 07. So I've been in a little over 13 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off enlisted and then I, and then I commissioned as an officer um, out of college, but my military has, has been 
some of the most cherished experiences and relationships that I have because it allowed me to interact with so many different people from so many different walks of life that mm-hmm. I never, ever would have interacted with outside mm-hmm. the military. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I also, I also uh, am a creative director for Southern Illinois Worship Center, which uh-huh. is a, uh, uh, allows me to be creatively free. <laughs> That's important for a creative type. Yes. So I have my hands in production and social media and marketing and branding and um, tech and website design and everything that everything I just there's no shortages of of ideas that I can pursue. But you're a modern Frederick Douglass then. Yes. Yes. I, I, I love it. I love that you're not limiting yourself to one area. That's your entrepreneurial spirit. I love that. Yep. And my wife and I, we've published a, uh, a devotional book together. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a e-commerce store and a digital marketing agency. So I've, I'm a firm believer. And because I'm so unapologetic about what I believe in, mm-hmm. I want to be able, I, I, I still don't want to be, I don't want to be um, irresponsible and not provide for my family mm-hmm. while, while standing for my truth. <laughs> yeah. You're always going to have that deep inside of you of always providing for your family and never letting them feel what you felt. I imagine. Yes. And it's very hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I took my, I took my kids down to see the projects that I grew up in Ooh. and um, most of it was torn down. My middle, my, my elementary school that I went to was um, vacant and abandoned and boarded up, and they oh. built a, they built a new one across the street from it. And um, I was telling my kids, I was like, "Yeah, you know, I saw my first shootout at that park right there. I seen like, I seen guys get shot at. I said, I <laughs> I got bullied at that school at that playground right there. And I was like, I seen I seen my I seen the first person overdose in that alley right there. And my kids are like. Oh my gosh, can we move here? This is like amazing. <laughs> I'm like, no. no, get in the car. We're leaving right now. <laughs> That's horrible that these are the memories that you're showing your kids. I mean, not horrible as a parent, but that's horrible that those are the things that come back to your mind when you visit your childhood home. Like most people haven't seen their first shooting until they're yeah. ever, maybe, or adults, right? But that just is a yeah. testament to the neighborhood you grew up in. So if you grew up in this neighborhood, did your mom, I don't know if this is, would be the case then if your mom or your dad, the once a week or once a month, you saw him, if they ever discussed racism with you, or if they discussed more like staying safe and alive, like this is how you survive on these streets is more important. Yeah. Uh, My parents, they have, they have had conversations of racism. Um, but it was, it was in the form of consequences, like you said. And so, um, my first one was when I was in third grade, my, and I started collecting cans, and I would go out like four in the morning, dumpster diving, and my mom told me, she was like, look, son, you got to be careful. You, you this little black kid out in the middle of the night while there's drug dealers and prostitutes and God knows what going on, and she's like, the first people, the first thought that people are going to have is not that you're out here making honest money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be their first thought. They're going to think you're out here either robbing somebody's, breaking in the houses. Like, what, what is he doing with this big old bag on his bicycle riding around? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I had to, I had to realize, I, I had to strategize how to go and do what I wanted to do would not be perceived as a threat. And she let you leave the house at 4 a.m. as a third grader. 
Well, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't really know until it was like months and oh. months into it. And she you weren't scared? I was not scared because you have to, you have to realize my mom, sometimes she would be out with her friends and she wouldn't come home until four or five in the morning. And by the time she came home, she'd be, she'd be drunk and she, she'd go pass out on her bed. And by the time she wakes up at like nine or 10, I'm back for my <laughs> nightly adventure of dumpster diving. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That makes me sad as a mom that you didn't feel like, did you feel like you were being watched over or you were your own parent? I, I was more so my own parent because me and my brother were left home alone um, quite often. But you have to realize everyone we knew were. Mm-hmm. That was normal. <laughs> it was normal. It was normal. So we just knew we had rules. You don't open the door for nobody. You don't answer the door. You don't talk to nobody. You just act like you're not there. And if you're and if it's your mom, she's not going to knock anyway because she got a key. And so we just we just, you know, and we didn't touch nothing that we wasn't supposed to because if she found out we were like dead anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. So how are you going to teach your children about the dangers of, or the interconnectedness of poverty and racism and, and all of those things that, well, from how your parents told you, what's, how is it going to sound different? Well, my, my parent, I like the way that my mom explained to me the first time, the second time that my mom talked to me about racism, I was in the wrong and it was preceded with a punch in the chest (laughs) because my cousins my cousins had it was it was during the time that my dad was before my dad went to prison he was very violent and abusive to my mom so my cousins on my mom's side gave me a gun and they were like look they were like hey hey little cuz your dad come through again on that stuff you use this and I was like cool I got a gun awesome all right and and they were also they were like hey since you got a gun you know here's here's i need you to hold these drugs for me and i'm like okay how much you gonna give me if i hold these drugs for you because you know i'm i'm thinking entrepreneur i'm i'm, uh-huh. like, I'm taking all the risks how much you gonna give me so <laughs> and so oh my, my mom my mom found my gun and my and the drugs that i was holding for one of my cousins and she freaked out like yes <laughs> as she should because <laughs> looking at me you like this guy this I'm I'm in like the fourth or fifth grade and um you would not think that I have a gun and some drugs no <laughs> so, and so she she had to like she was crying she was angry she was sad she was she was ashamed because she didn't know like she was mm-hmm. ashamed because she was the reason I had the gun mm-hmm because of her relationship with my dad at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a real eye opener. She's like, son, if you get caught with this, your, your life is pretty much over. Mm-hmm. Either you, either they're going to shoot you on site because you have a gun mm-hmm. or you're going to go to jail until you're old enough to go to prison. You're going to mm-hmm. go to the uh, juvenile home until you're old enough to go to prison. And I'm thinking like, but I'm doing this pr- to protect you. And she yeah. was like, no, like, that's not how you protect me. <laughs> Wrong reasoning. <laughs> yeah. And so with my own kids, I, it's a little different. It's a little different. And I explain this because I'm blessed. I live in a subdivision and a very nice neighborhood. We're the only black people that live in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids go to a predominantly white school. It's a very good school district. My wife mm-hmm. made sure that they had the best education. So they're like, 
they've grown up being the minority of their whole life because we we put them in private school where they were the only black kids. We put mm-hmm. them in a really good public school where there's like five black kids. And, mm-hmm. and so um, and so they're like, when we go visit family and they're like the majority, they're like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> that It has to feel weird for them since that's not their um, norm. Yeah, so it's it's a little harder for us because everything they know they're a, a minority, even at church, they're a minority. Mm. And so I grew up in a predominantly black church. There was like one white person that went to my church. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. There was very few white people in my neighborhood. I went mm-hmm. to predominantly black school. So I grew up being comfortable being black. Mm-hmm. Where my kids, they're comfortable, but they're ignorant to the the disadvantages of being black how others view them maybe yes and so I have to teach them like in our neighborhood we live in a cul-de-sac and all the neighbor kids like they have their garage doors open they're out playing they Mm -hmm. go in each other garages and they go Mm -hmm. grab a basketball or they go play with a bike or something and nobody cares they're all friendly we're all like a little family but I'm like no son you can't you can't do that but why you know Tommy's he's he's going to do it I was like no because if that lady comes home and you're in her garage how she's going to know that you're my son she might confuse you as being just a different black guy that's in her garage stealing something or breaking into her house or doing something mm-hmm. like that like you 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 don't have the luxury of being like everyone else and just going mm-hmm. into places and doing that and like um my my youngest son or my middle son I should say because we just had another one but my middle son he was in school and he says dad I don't like being black I was like why not oh he was like because people forget your name when you're black they always remember all the white people name but they always forget my name and I was like son it's not because you're black you're just a new student and he was like no but he's new too he came the same time I did they know his name but they don't know my name mm-hmm. so automatically assume it's because he's he's black and so I, I have to explain things differently for yeah, them. Yeah, I can see that. And so it, it and it, and I have to be very tactful because kids take things at face value. <laughs> so yes, and yes. so I, I will say after having the race talk with them, they are very aware. And so like when they went to school and it was like another black kid in their class, they came, dad, there's another black kid in my class. (laughs) I'm like, okay, it's fine. (laughs) I'm so glad you explained it that way because I had not considered how you were more comfortable growing up and being surrounded by predominantly black. You were not a minority in your environment and your children are minorities both, I mean, not that the skin color matters, but both same skin color and set in two different situations, there's going to be two different scenarios and outcomes to that, isn't there? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. incredible. I, You're just making me suddenly realize, wow, not everybody who is a minority experiences racism or discrimination the same way. Oh, yes, absolutely. My, my kids were not aware of people's skin color until we we told them to be aware. Wow. That's a positive thing on one hand, though, because they just see other people as other people. And 
that's sad that society is the one that distinguishes, no, you have to see other people like this or like this or like this. And then you have yeah. to bring that awareness to them that, wait a minute, no, 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 this is how we do it in our world right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to label somebody. And, and it's, it's sad. It takes away their innocence. And it, it really, for my wife, it, it was it's so hard because you want your children to be that way. You want them to not have to consider color. Yeah. But on the other hand, if they don't, they can blindly walk into a situation yep. and wonder mm-hmm. how did it turn bad so fast? You're right. You're right. Oh my goodness. Well, you were, since we were just talking about seeing color, has anybody ever told you, I don't see color as, as they were trying to maybe, you know, show that they're on your side, they're your ally, <laughs> like, Hey, Harold, I don't see color. I'm right there with you. Has that happened to you? And if so, how do you respond? Yes, that happens all the time. Seriously. It's it's one of the ones, it it really bothers me. Like it really, really bothers me because, because I feel if you don't see color, then how can you see me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you can't see me. You can't see the struggle that people like me face on a daily basis to get to the places that we are as black men and women. If you don't see color, if you Mm -hmm. don't see color, then you don't see injustice. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So So, just like you said to your uh, eventual friend in the military, when he treated you racist by telling you the story of ham and yada, yada, yada. Um, how do you go ahead and teach people who say that? Well, you know what? I know you might mean this in a positive way, but it's not being taken that way. Maybe you should try saying this. Like, have you ever had conversations with people that have actually changed their mind? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have conversations all the time with with people who said it to me because I'm a very understanding person. At least I like to think that I am. Mm-hmm. And so when people say I don't see color, I know that their heart intention is... I don't see you as a black man and treat you as a black man. I treat you as a human being, like someone who is just a human being. And Mm -hmm. that's the intent behind it. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't treat me as a black man, then you deny everything that I've experienced as a black man. Yes. You have to let me know that you get it. I tell people, this is to answer your question. How how, how should they respond if they don't want to say, I don't see color? I tell people a lot, just let me know that you get it. And not only that you get it, but you're doing what you can to understand what you don't get. Mm. And so, and so when people, t- when people see me, it's like, Harold, listen, I get it. And I'm learning. Oh, means, I like that. That means more to me than, Hey man, I don't see color. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like if you say, Hey man, I don't see color. I'm like, man, look, I don't even, I feel like just walking away. Cause I'm exhausted by hearing that. <laughs> yes. And I've heard this sentiment from, probably every single person I've visited with during this season is I'm exhausted explaining. I'm exhausted from trying to tell people this, that, or the other. <laughs> it, it seems like it really takes an emotional and physical toll on you. But here's, here's one thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very unique in that, and this is no like brag on myself. I had to realize early on that God has strategically placed me where I'm at to be who I am for a reason. And that reason is to be a connector and a unifier. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always found myself working in places where I'm the only black person. I've always found myself serving in places where I'm the only black person. I always found myself being the voice that 
all black people opinions have to be on my shoulders. And so, mm. um, yeah. I'm, but I'm comfortable with that because I have a grace to navigate those waters just like this interview. I have a grace to speak about things in a way that I'm not exhausted. I'm not overwhelmed. I don't get overly emotional about because I know that it's one step closer to understanding and unifying. And so with me, I always look to have those conversations. They're not exhausting to me. They're life for me because mm. I, when I have those conversations and people walk away changed from their perception or their perspective, then there's hope there. There is. But it's exhausting when you have that conversation and people just say, well, we're just going to agree to disagree. <sighs> then we have a problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're not ready to learn or see that in themselves. Huh? And so, yeah, uh. so it's, it, it can be exhausting. Everyone's not built to carry that burden. But I've taken on that burden and I enjoy it because I'm lighthearted. I can joke about a lot of serious things and it'd be okay. And people know that, you know, when I'm serious, I'm serious, but it's just don't say you're colorblind. Yes, (laughs) please don't say you're colorblind or you don't see color, which I've been guilty of the fact of the same thing and uh, and regretful and have learned since then. Uh, for sure. But I know it is, I'm so thankful that you said, I see it. I see the heart behind it. And that is such a a mature way. I'm thankful for your maturity in that (laughs) because then it allows for the conversation or allows for the growth of uh, the individual who said it. I like how you said, sometimes you have to be the lone black voice for the whole grouping of people. And that's not fair. Like no one's going to look at me and say, Corey, you speak for all white people on this subject. No, we're all individuals, right? I don't, I really dislike how we look to one black person and you're the example or you're the reason, or you have to shoulder the blame for Mm -hmm. what the whole entire grouping of individuals is supposed to do or the whole stereotyping, right? Um, If we could just give that one grace to each other, just (laughs) don't let your experience be the sole experience of what it's like being a black man in America. That's why I wanted so many voices because they have come from every single different angle and they've been beautiful. The stories are so unique. Yes, there are similarities, but yes, there are also incredible differences and beauties that are highlighted by each of them. And to give that gift to each person, just you are unique all on your own. And Thank I do you. not expect you <laughs> to speak for an entire grouping of people. Yes, yes. And it, and it's hard to articulate that sometimes because people have good intentions and they say, Harold, how would, people ask me all the time, Harold, how would this come across to a black person? Mm. I'm like, I, I, I love the fact that you're asking that question because that means that you care. That means you care about how you're coming across. Mm -hmm. But my Black experience is different from their Black experience. So what I may be okay with may rub someone else the wrong way. Yes. So you you can't, like, I can tell you if Harold's not offended. (laughs) Yes, yes. But like, even with my father, my father, who was born in the 40s, has a totally different Black experience than my black experience. Yes, he does. Um, so, I mean, my dad, he, he, he passed down that unifying concept of black and white because 
when my dad bought his first home, he couldn't get a loan from the bank because he was black. It was redlined. Mm. But he had white friends and he had his white friend purchase the land and he paid his friend in cash because he had the money. He just didn't have the means to pay for the land. My dad bought the land and he built his house with his, you know, from, from the ground up on the land that he purchased. But he, he, he wasn't in a position to purchase that land himself. Mm-hmm. In a nice neighborhood. And it was, you know, it, they didn't think he had that type of money, but he, he, he was working at Caterpillar and he had his other mm-hmm. illegal ventures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, those are one of the things, you know, my dad intentionally put me in sports where I was the only black person. I didn't understand why. Like I was in soapbox derby racing. Nobody in the project <laughs> knows what soapbox derby racing is. I imagine. I'm this ghetto <laughs> hood boy with my fubu on <laughs> at this soapbox derby racing. And they're looking at me like, is this kid lost? <laughs> is he for real? <laughs> and, and I got good at it. And my dad was like, you're going to have to learn how to interact with white people on an intellectual and mm. um, equal level if you want to make it far in life. And I'm like, but what does soapbox derby have to do with it? He says, he says, he says, because you're going to have to go in places where no one else is like you are at. And if you know how to handle yourself in, 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 in environments where there's no one like you, mm-hmm. when there are people like you, you can help them not make the mistakes that you made. And I'm like, this is such a wise drug dealer, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just gonna I was gonna say the same thing. It's that whole yin and yang. Just because he has character flaws does not negate the wisdom that he also yes. carries. Isn't that yes. the truth of all of us though? Like there's things that are not positive about all of us, and that doesn't negate the things that are positive. So I'm glad you were able to learn from his wisdom, yes. which I'm sure he learned from, he learned probably the hard way, for sure. Yes, for sure, for sure. But like you said, it's, it's different. And, and I, don't, I don't shoulder that, that voice um, willingly, mm-hmm. but, some, but sometimes I will speak on behalf of that voice knowingly. That's an excellent way to put it. Thank you. And thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Yes. Well, so lastly, ha- have you ever been accused of playing the race card? And tell me that experience, if that's the case or, or what that looks like in your life. That's the classic, classic question. Is, is it? The, the race card. Mm-hmm. And yes, I have been accused of playing the race card um, negatively um, because... And I, and I wasn't, but it comes comes across as that I have. I've been accused of that, um, mostly because my name is Harold McGee. It does it's not it's not a typical black person's name, mm-hmm. and so when I go to job interviews that they've never saw me before, mm-hmm. and they see my resume, and mm-hmm. then they see me, and you and they can't hide the shock. And as an earlier, early on in my ignorant stages, I would say, are you surprised that I'm black? 
and they will get all tongue-tied. Well, no, 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 it's not it at all. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> but but so I've, I've have been accused of playing the race card because I, I've said things like, if I was white, you wouldn't have said that to me. And they was like, oh, Harold, that's low. Why would you say that? You know, that's not what I mean. And I'm, and, and, and I'm like, well, it's true, though. It's, it's harsh. It's a harsh reality, but it's true. Um, yeah. But now that I am, I find myself in environments where I'm usually the only Black person, mm-hmm. I intentionally play the race card to make my counterparts more aware of their racial bias. Give me some examples. So a great example would be in the military. We were taking um, a group picture and they had me in the back. And I was like, I don't think it's a good idea that you put me in the back. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I'm the only black officer here. And you're, it looks like you're trying to hide me. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're playing the race car. I'm like, no, look, look. I'm telling you what people are going to think when they see me as an officer in the back of the crowd mm-hmm. with everyone else in front, put me in the front and let you know that you're proud to have me a part of the team. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Another, I do it in the church world too. You know, yes. I, I'm a creative director for a church. I'm the only black staff member at that whole church of like 16 people. Uh-huh. And so when we do group events, they say, Oh, Harold, uh, we have you down here. We have these people up here. I'm like, look, um, it's probably not a good look for me to be on the floor and all the white people on the stage. That's not the message you want to send. Mm-hmm. Why would you say that? You're playing the race card. That's, I am playing the race card because I want you to be aware that you are unknowingly mm, sending that message. Sending uh-huh. that message. Uh-huh. So I find myself, that's a great tactic that I have. I intentionally play the race card to bring awareness, but, but I don't do it publicly. So That's you turn it around I on turn them. it around. I mm-hmm. turn it around because I say, if I play the race card on you in private, you won't have to have the race card played on you in public. Mm, that's a very wise perspective. And so I would be the one to have that awkward conversation with you because if someone else blasts you on Facebook or YouTube, then the whole world's going to have that awkward conversation with you. <laughs> yes, so true. I really like how your spin on that. And I've never heard it, but I see it completely. I can completely see your point of view on that. Do you ever feel like, though, that since you said you're used to being the only Black person in some of these situations, that you're the uh, token Black friend or you're the one you're singled out because, oh, here's my black friend. I'm not racist. Like, do you see that? Like on the kind of other hand, other side of that, it seems like the other side of the playing the race card coin, like it's almost like white people playing the race card. Well, I can't be racist. Look at, I have a black friend, Harold. Yeah, I I, I get that a lot. Um, But I have a way of dealing with that too. (laughs) Tell me, what do you say in response? Um, Because here, here's the thing. I'm very aware of authenticity. Mm -hmm. So if our relationship is authentic, that means that we've had great conversations. So like take you, for example, if you, you wouldn't say, Hey, I'm not racist because I have a black friend named Harold. No, because me and you've talked, you wouldn't, instead you would say, I'm not racist. 
I have a black friend who's shared with me this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. So I am more aware and I am more in the know. So my black friends, they, they wouldn't say I'm not racist. Look at my black friend, Harold. No, they would say I'm not racist. I've had conversations with Harold and I know about this. I know about Mm -hmm. this systemic racism. I know about Mm this, um, uh, prison you know school school to prison system i mm-hmm. know about redlining like they would they would say about they would share the things that they know and they've learned they wouldn't share the people that they know mm-hmm. and so I, I i like to tell people look i know i may be your only black friend and i'm okay with that mm-hmm. but if i'm gonna be your only black friend you about to get schooled on a lot of black knowledge <laughs> i love it <laughs> i am so glad you feel free enough to say that that's Beautiful. That's a perfect so, way to end those <laughs> questions. Oh, Harold. So if you if you if you are not prepared to undergo a lot of black wisdom, then you're not gonna have a, a, a black friend for long. <laughs> That's the truth. That is the truth. You have to be willing to go into these conversations with humility and ready to open your eyes to different perspectives, new awarenesses that you thought you had, but you didn't. Like it takes a lot of humility to learn how to be anti-racist, to learn how to see life through an other lens, because I've heard this uh, quite a few times actually in my studies and in my reading that a lot of people think that the white way of looking at things is just the normal way. It's just the standard way. Instead of it's the white way of looking at things. Like we don't even, our yes. bias is so biased that that's just the norm instead yeah. of the uh, one other perspective, right? And that's so true. And people, and you'd be surprised. Like I get, I get it on both ends. Like people be like, hey, Harold, how can you be a black man and be so in love with a white religion? And I'm like, look, it's not a white religion. It's just a lot of white people who interpret it. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you heard the, like me personally, I've read a lot of slave narratives. I've read a lot of mm-hmm. uh, autobiographies about great people like Frederick Douglass, who mm-hmm. are Christians and uh, uh, Nat Turner and all these mm-hmm. people who, you know, uh, with the Underground Railroad and all this Martin Luther King. Like I've, I've read to know that the black experience within Christianity is rich, it's deep, and it goes further than slavery. Yes. So I'm not persuaded by a white um perspective because i know the black narrative that's going to feed my soul it's about perspective if you if all you read is a white perspective then all mm-hmm. you'll see is from a white point of view mm-hmm. but you shouldn't let that be the reason why you discount something yes just get, a, just, just get another perspective <laughs> that's all just go get one <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I'm going to close us off with three short little questions. Um, I don't know if the first one's super short. I mean, we can make it short if we want to. But what is your best tip for making the world a better place? Oh, yes. I put a lot of thought into that. And I could have said a lot of things, but here's here's what I want people to see. Okay. Um, Love and hate has no nationality nor allegiance. And that's something that I've learned over the years, no matter what environment I'm in, whether it's military, whether it's church, whether Mm -hmm. it's society, workplace, love and hate has no nationality nor allegiance. It's a choice that every human has to make. So my advice would be choose love. Uh, I'm busily scribbling this down as you're speaking. (laughs) That's beautiful. I love your quote. 
Yeah, you're going to see this in a lot of places pretty soon. <laughs> this is going to go viral. I love that. Love and hate have no national nationality or allegiance. Uh, you don't have to deep. be a certain race to, 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 to you love don't. or hate somebody. You don't. It's taught, right? Yeah. Um, okay. What are you the most thankful for right now? I would have to say my family. Good. We just, we just had a baby in April. Congratulations. Third, and he's amazing. Um, my wife is amazing for putting up with all us boys during this quarantine. <laughs> Ooh, we, yes, she is. She gets a gold star. <laughs> Good but for I, her. I'm, I'm thankful for my family. They're amazing. Lucky you. All right. And what is your favorite quote? Uh, I'm torn between two, so I'm going to give you both. Okay. I'm cool with that. <laughs> so my first quote, there's, well, can I give you like a couple? <laughs> you know what? With your love of reading and learning, I think it's not fair to limit you to just one. So you just list as many quotes as you want, and I will write all of them down because I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I won't, I won't go crazy with it. Okay. But um, Frederick Douglass, man, I love Frederick. I Douglass. love his book. Yes. And yes, yes. Um, one of his quotes that I live by is that it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm. And that resonates so much with me. Yeah. That's been your life experience for that's sure. Been, that's mm -hmm. been my life experience. Mm -hmm. But another, another quote that he has that I just, it's about education, but you can put anything in there. Mm -hmm. And he says, some know the value of education by having it. I know the value by not having it. Mm. And you can put that. And for me, that's, that's been my life mm -hmm. too. Like some people know the value of poverty by having it or mm -hmm. not having it. Some people know the, the value of wealth by having it are mm -hmm. not having it. So whatever they are, health, you can, you can know the value of health by having it while the other person know its value by not having it and don't, and not wanting to die. Mm -hmm. But my all time, I would say my all time favorite quote in this generation, in this day and age mm -hmm. is by, by my boy KB. He's amazing. And I love him. His quote that he says is to me, resistance carries with it a certain posture. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Oh, I've heard that said in other ways, but that is such a deep truth. And I love how KB puts it. That yes. is Excellent. Oh, that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing each one of those and for sharing your life. I, I will honor it with this podcast. I hope others honor it and learn from it and value your experience. And thank you for your vulnerability and sharing. And thank you for bringing awareness through conversation with me. I am so deeply thankful for you. Yes, I appreciate it. I, I would I would end with um with this if you'll if you'll allow me. Oh, please do. Um, there I didn't mention this, but there was a um there was a question, um like what would you say to a white person? Uh huh. To help them better understand. Yeah. And I would say that all it takes is a conversation. We are more accepting than you think, mm -hmm. and that goes both ways. 
Mm-hmm. That's for whites that wants to know more about uh, black and the black experience. But you'd be surprised how many black people have asked me what it's like working with all white people. <laughs> well, we should be surprised. We're all we're all curious, aren't we? We all want to know think something that we're not familiar with. That that doesn't surprise me actually. And so that's why I am so appreciative and I'm so honored to be on here with you because honestly, all it takes is a conversation and we woke and we both walk away enlightened. Yes, we do. And we've built bridges that weren't there before. Absolutely. And that's how you build community. That's how you build connection. And we have another friend in each yes, other now. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harold. This has been wonderful. I have great admiration for Harold's genuineness and teachableness how he wants to learn from those who've come before him, how to be an agent of change for his own generation. I just love and appreciate his activist heart. The idea that activism boils down to being authentic is so true. Those are the people who inspire us because their passion comes from the depths of who they are, the experiences they've lived, and the empowerment they desire to bestow on the powerless. Harold's insight into his friend's racist comment shows such maturity. He saw the root cause and didn't focus on the offense to himself. He knew racism was taught and that his friend was just repeating what he'd been told his whole life. What a productive way of combating racism by educating people in the truth, dispelling falsehoods head on and having a conversation with the offender. The most encouraging part to me is that an initial negative comment and interaction yielded a lasting friendship because Harold took the time to have a hard conversation with someone different from him, and it ended up changing both lives for the good. How gracious of Harold to be so understanding towards people ignorant of their racist words. Understanding that people are products of their environment helps in our healing process so much as it did in Harold's case. He chooses to engage in dialogue and to educate so that relationship may prevail. Now the ball is in the offender's court and they get to choose how to respond, transform and learn from their error, or leave in a huff of humiliation and anger due to their pride getting hurt. His response of, just let me know that you get it, and not only that you get it, but that you're doing what you can to understand what you don't get. That's just genius. We can't be afraid of conversation. This is where the work starts. Harold, I get it. And thanks to you and so many others who vulnerably shared their stories, I am learning. I'm astounded by how deftly Harold is able to articulate the problem of systemic poverty, which is a byproduct of systemic racism, from his lived experience. Let's review this again. If the government replaces the father figure in the home, then the government dictates how that home is run because that's typically the father's role. What profound insight. He's lived this. He knows that one of a father's roles is to foster and nurture their children's identity and to affirm his wife. How incredibly sad when the government becomes the one who gives you your identity provides you a false sense of self and security, and thus ends up stifling people's mental growth, relational growth, and community growth. 
I can see why Harold was drawn to counseling others and encouraging them to think about the legacy that they're leaving. I appreciate how Harold has taken the negative expression of playing the race card and turned it on its head and using it as a tool of awareness instead. He intentionally plays the race card to help make his counterparts more aware of their racial bias. What a beautiful way to describe oneself as a connector and unifier. And what a gift to the world Harold is. He delights in educating people, bringing people together, and encouraging others despite where they are. May we all learn to be as accepting, authentic, and as gracious as Harold has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.